saying to him, uh, both last week and this week, there's something, there's something within all of this that we're in, uh, in, in this teaching element of why church matters. Um, this draws out of me uh, using the language of why I have felt called going years, years, and years, and years back, some 25 plus years, of being called to be a pastor. Uh, because when I was called, this was a lot of what I felt drawn, um, called into teaching the scriptures, into teaching what it means to follow Jesus. But for me, when I felt that call, that nudge, I was working with middle school students, back then called junior hires, and there was something about teaching the scriptures so that we can walk this out. But for me, I didn't necessarily have a frame of what a pastor is a whole lot. I, I do not have pastors in my family. It wasn't a, well, I'll just do this because this is what uh, dads and uncles, and I, I didn't have that framework. So what does it look like to be a pastor? I just walked out what I felt called to do, and then, you know, I was saying to Sawyer, and in doing that and going after the heart of it, why church matters, what it looks like to follow Jesus, uh, along the way, I've heard once or twice or 200 times, uh, hi, how are you? Oh, blah, blah, blah. You get to, so what do you do? And I go, oh, I'm a pastor. And they go, really? Uh, and I'm not sure what the really is all about exactly, but somehow getting in there, and I'm like, well, I guess it's maybe a little bit different than they had in mind. I had a little bit of that discussion with some uh, sitting with some people I had not met before, and then I'm sitting and talking with people, and they say a bunch of stuff, and then they go, and what do you do? And I go, uh-oh, I'm a pastor. And then I see the Rolodex start thumbing through all the things they just said, <laughs> and all of the conversation we previously had, and I thought, okay, well, let's just all relax a little bit. No, no. And then somebody's like, oh, I've got to go to the bathroom. Of course you do. Get up and go to the bathroom. Regroup, collect yourself, maybe slip out the back door. I get it. Here we go. Uh, so um, I'm excited to sink into this all the more to talk about uh, partnering in the gospel that is the good news of Jesus and to sink into that. So last week, we began this series of Why Does Church Matter? And the question, Why Does Church Matter?, kind of centers us in this whole thing, as well as the question, what does it mean to partner in the good news or the gospel of Jesus? These questions are really important. So to begin tackling those questions, we had to unpack what it means to partner together in community and with God to be good news in our world. And that required us to differentiate between partnership and membership. Because membership is a transaction wherein I give money to a gym and they let me use their equipment. If I choose not to go to the gym, I still have to pay. And the gym could really give a rip whether or not I show up. Just pay your dues, correct? Yeah, partnership though is I would say a relational dance we have together that is rooted in commitment to one another and with God in walking out this community life together. 
What we do not find in the Bible, the biblical scriptures, is, is we don't find it asking us to construct a system of membership. Those are man-made systems upheld and sustained by institutions. The intent is to organize people, which is helpful and good. That's the intent. To organize people, it's helpful, it's good, great. But when the systems flex toward exclusion and debating whether or not people's worthiness, so they have worthiness, then it's safe to say we have lost the plot. Okay? So we took some time last week to look into the ways and writings of a guy named Paul. He was one of the first Christians who was one of uh, first Christians who started, Paul started communities committed to following the way of Jesus. We call them churches. And they, he started these all over the known world at that time. And then throughout his travels, which included his imprisonments uh, for living the way of Jesus and encouraging others to live out the way of Jesus. Paul, in his travels, wrote letters to these churches he had started, and he talked about being partners in the good news of Jesus. What does it mean for us and you in your context, churches that he's writing to, what does it look like in your context to be partners in the good news of Jesus? So then Paul offered us a metaphor of the church, a picture, an image that is a body that has many parts, but with one united purpose. Then we also looked at some of the last words of the Bible, written by a fellow named John, who rather boldly makes the claim that God is love. Whoa. And if God is love, then love is the mystical glue that holds our metaphorical body together. Love is the glue that holds us together. And this then, we are beginning to uncover a rather significant tension within all of the love talk. The tension finds itself within love and power. Because we like to think in terms of power. And there's talks of power in the Bible, so how do love and power hold hands? There are those who recognize the mysterious power of love. Uh, I'm looking at you, Huey Lewis, singing from the 1900s. Some people, come on. Uh, so some people who understand the power of love, that it's mysterious power of love, and so they can champion love being our center. Great, yes. And then there are others who hear the word love and cast it off as squishy, hippie propaganda. Because we want some strong leadership. We need some control and we need strategy. We want to master something and then let the masters teach others how it is done. Because that provides us a sense of certainty and control. And the ego loves certainty and control. And that tension takes us to a thought experiment as we step into today's teaching. Ready? If I were to say what we need now going forward is we need everyone to show their birth certificates 
so that we can properly take attendance, know who is here, present and accounted for, we need everyone to show their birth certificates. Is the birth certificate the best way to prove one's existence? No. A birth certificate informs us where and when and to whom someone is born, which can be important, but it is not helpful in proving whether someone is currently alive, correct? I say that because when we are asked to explain why we are who we are, we do not roll, roll out a file cabinet and explain our purpose in meaning through paper documents as proof. We tell stories of our lived experiences, correct? We use symbolism. We use metaphors. We talk about movies and poetry, books. Have you read this book? You know that one part? Well, that's kind of like you know, in this movie, there was this scene and this happened. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, because that's kind of like we do this, correct? Symbolism, metaphors, pictures, images. In other words, there are other ways of knowing. So I'm just going to share some of my writing uh, because I figured that would just be easier of ways in which we sink into some different kinds of knowing that has been really, really helpful and meaningful in my own life. So I will do it this way. The first one is around images, imaginal knowing, is the only way that the unconscious can move into consciousness. It happens through fantasy, through dreams, through symbols, where all is thrown together. That's the Greek word symbolin. That means to throw together. That gets done through fantasy, pictures, images, uh, events, and brilliantly told stories. It happens through poetry, where well-chosen words create an image that in turn creates a new awareness, which was in us the entire time. We knew it but we didn't know it. You've had these moments, yes? Someone says something and your response was, oh, yes, I knew it. I just couldn't articulate it like that. But those words, that story brought out something in me that had been there. I just wasn't able to pinpoint it. Are you with me? Yeah. Yeah. So, we must be open to imaginal knowing because the work of transformation will not be done logically, rationally, or cerebrally. Our intellectual knowing alone is simply not adequate to the greatness and depth of the task. Even the most logical and rational people I know speak in books, movies, TV shows, and metaphor. Of course, because imaginal knowing awakens different elements of our brains and our being. Are you with me? Yeah. Now then, number two, epiphany. There is the way which I would think religion would prefer and encourage know as epiphonic knowing. An epiphany is a lifting of the veil a life-altering manifestation of meaning, the eureka moment, an awareness of the depth of life. It is the radical grace which we cannot manufacture or orchestrate. 
There are no formulas which ensure its appearance. It is always gift, unearned, unexpected, and larger than our present reality. And so my guess as to the gap between why religion would internally prefer epiphany and why religion does not lead with it is because you cannot manufacture epiphanies. We can only ask for them, wait for them, and expect them, know they are given, keep out of the way, and then simply thank the divine afterward. Oh, I bless you, God, for this experience, this moment, this awakening, this epiphany. Epiphany cannot be controlled, but it does not mean that religion has not tried to manipulate it and document it. And that tension is going to take us into a Jesus story. Let's pause, pray, and then off we go. I bless you, God, gracious God, for the gift of gathering together, for having our hearts and our minds pride open, jostled awake. That is the hope and prayer as we gather that we would just be open, hearts, minds, souls, all of us, our entire being, open to what you have for us as a community. How you're whispering to people, nudging them, drawing us to you. As our hope and prayer now, God, that the words of my mouth and maybe the meditation and posture of my heart bring honor and glory to you in all that we sink into here and now. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, we're going to jump to the gospel according to John. And so I'm really excited. After spending uh, almost an entire year in Genesis, we're going to be able to jump around, but we're going to be in a gospel, so we're going to be in the New Testament, which means I got to spend some time hanging out with our good friend N.T. Wright. Uh, which means studying a little bit in that. So that's going to be good. So in the Gospel of John, we're going to be in chapter 3, and we're going to go and have all sorts of fun. So uh, John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now, there was a Pharisee, circle, a man named Nicodemus, circle, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, circle it. He came to Jesus at night circle it, and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So we have this guy who comes to Jesus stating he knows Jesus is from God because Jesus has backed up his teaching with actions that could only come from God. That's beautiful. So what's the issue in this story? Because we feel there's a tension. Something's going on. And the answer would be context, context, context. Okay? We're going to dig into the details because they matter. This guy is a Pharisee, we're told. What's a Pharisee? A Pharisee is one of four main religious and political movements that both preceded the life of Jesus and surrounded the life of Jesus. A Pharisee begins, ready, with the birth certificate question. Where were you born and to whom were you born? Those are of first importance. A Pharisee would be wanting to know, 
Where were you born and to whom you were born? I need to know your importance. And that's where it's found. Pharisees adhered to strict Sabbath rules of rest, purity rituals, resurrection of the dead, tithing, and food restrictions based on the Hebrew scriptures, what people often call the Old Testament, Hebrew scriptures. They, Pharisees, believed that God would send Messiah to deliver certain people if we would just become more pure. If we would obey the Torah's teachings more rigorously, then God would liberate us. If there were more righteous people like us and fewer sinners among us, fewer prostitutes and drunks and Roman collaborators, then Roman domination would be brought to an end by God. So to be a Pharisee is to be a religious purist and elitist, which would lead to seeing all others as a bit suspect. Pharisees have the proper paperwork. It's on their walls in their living room. You can see it if they have you over, if they have you over. So Pharisees have the proper, proper paperwork and they simply need to master the instruction manual. Then we're good. Next, we have this guy's name, Nicodemus. Now, does that have any bearing on what we're doing here? Good question. As I've highlighted before, names in the scriptures go way beyond, well, it's really cool, that's a cool name. Or we just really liked it, so we named our child that. Names carry meaning, and oftentimes they carry purpose for someone. So, the name Nicodemus is actually two Greek words smashed together. Nikos, which means victory. Think Nike. That's where we get our word. Nikos, victory, Nike. And Deimos, which means a mass of people. Nicodemus means victory of the people or the people's champion. That's who he is for a people. So his name matters. Then we keep going. So this guy who is the victory of the people sits at the top of the religious and political order. He is also a member of the Jewish ruling council, it said, that's also known as the great Sanhedrin. So what's that? Well, we're going to go with the Talmudic description. And the Talmud is historical writings of the rabbis that kind of flush out um, kind of commentary on the scriptures in ways. So a Talmudic description of the Sanhedrin was a court of 71 sages that met on fixed occasions in the chamber of the hewn stones in the temple of, in Jerusalem. So it was a religious legislative body once the law goes out to all Israel. Politically, it could appoint the king and the high priest, declare war, and expand the territory of Jerusalem and the temple. Judicially, it could try a high priest, a false prophet, a rebellious elder, or an errant tribe. Religiously, it supervised certain rituals, including the Yom Kippur, which is Day of Atonement liturgy. So that's what this governing body, if you will, is. So Nikos Demos, Nicodemus, let's call him Nico for short. Uh, 
He's as powerful as they come in Israel. He is a religious and political leader. He is an answer man who is the champion of the people. So there's nothing inherently wrong that we see in here, but his membership to the Pharisees and his membership to the Sanhedrin requires that he be only an answer man, which explains now why he comes to Jesus in the cover of night. It says he came at night. Why? Because if you hold membership with the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, you're supposed to have and give all the answers. You are not to have questions. That would be a problem. Are you with me? So what do you do then is you sneak out at night and you meet up with Jesus and you ask, hey, hey, what's the deal with how you live? Because you give yourself to healing the hurting, serving the least of these, and calling out the religious system for oppressing people. Um, That's not how power works, dude. So what gives? Because if he's a part of the Sanhedrin which meets in the hewn of the stone, meets in the temple, what happens when this guy has been healing and teaching and doing all these amazing things, including showing up in the temple and flipping tables over and calling out the system and saying, you are oppressing people. If you're in the Sanhedrin, you're over here meeting and then you hear a ruckus. And you walk out and you go, why are there birds flying around in the temple? Why are the cattle running? What's going on in here? That guy right there is upsetting the system. And you start going, whoa, what? I've got some questions, but we're not allowed to have questions. So I'll sneak out later tonight and I got to figure out what this guy's story is. Are you with me? Yeah. Now, John 3, 3 and 4. So we move into these things. Jesus replied to him as he came to him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. Nico, how can anyone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked, Surely they cannot enter a second time into their their mother's womb to be born. Oy vey. Like, come on, some of us just had breakfast, Nico. Let's not give that image. That's a rather disturbing one, dude. So Jesus keeps going like, okay, let's work this one out. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now here's a fascinating thing. The word spirit and the word wind is the same Greek word, pneuma. Pneuma means wind Spirit, breath. And so this is all swirling, and he's saying, hey, he's working this together, and Nico's going, uh, uh, uh. Jesus says that in order to see the kingdom of God, one would need a rebirth or a second birth. So let's be honest, that seems weird. 
someone says that to you, you don't go, oh yeah, that sounds great. But he is speaking to a religious and political elite who understands honor and importance and in many ways the validity of life which is found in someone's birth certificate. Something that is frozen, static, and forever in a specific time and place to a specific people. And Jesus in this is calling that whole way of determining a person's value and worth into question. Here's the thing. Does anyone here remember being born? Do not raise your hand. <laughs> no one here remembers that, remembers it. If you have video of it, please keep that to yourself. Um, then, then, of course, did, was anyone here birthed by means of passing an intellectual test? Nope. Birth is an experience or something that is done unto us, which then we need a metaphor to better understand this. Metaphor. In the womb, a baby is totally enveloped and surrounded by the mother so that paradoxically it cannot see the mother and cannot have a full concept of the mother. It's inability to see or picture its mother is caused by the mother's all-enveloping presence, not by her absence. The mother is so present she cannot be seen or conceptualized for the baby. To see its mother, the baby has to experience birth. And that is an event it's a swirling cocktail of pain and ecstasy, so I've been told, that is an all-encompassing experience. It is physical, emotional, and spiritual. It's not an intellectual uh, idea you agree with. In order to see, we must be born again. Now, Let's think about that for Nicodemus. Ready? He lives inside the womb of a particular religious system. He has been taught that belonging and power are already determined and they move from the top down. And this womb provides privilege and wealth for those on top. But now he sees Jesus using his power to heal the broken feed the hungry, and by way of love, create belonging for the lonely and those who are marginalized. And he sees Jesus flip the systems of religious and political oppression upside down. So he seeks out a conversation with Jesus, and in this, Jesus gives him a metaphor, a picture of being birthed out of that suffocating religious womb in order to see with new eyes the God who is present everywhere for everyone. Come on. That is just pure giddy-up. Or for Nico, he's still confused and has further questions. Great. John 3, 9 through 11. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. 
dude, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Whoa. I think this is really encouraging though, in many ways to me, because we get a better explanation. Jesus says, hey, me and my students, we have seen in a new way. And I've offered teachings and you have my community, this community of people following me, we have the experiences that reveal the fruit of the truth. And y'all, religious elite, don't get it. Y'all, religious elite, don't see it or you don't accept it. But he keeps the conversation going. But he's just pointing out, we've been living this out and y'all just don't see it or get it or like it. So what does Jesus do next? What should he do? Does, should he offer some really solid, good, scientific and rigorous intellectual data and evidence? What you got, Jesus? How are you going to go from here? Verse 12. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. Ooh, circle that word. How then will you believe, he says it again, if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes, third time he uses that word, may have eternal life in him. Now that word believe is really crucial, but it's sadly been lost to much of our modern minds. The original Greek word is pistis. Go ahead and say pistis. Pistis means to commit one's trust. Very different. To believe is to commit one's trust. Our context tends to treat believe as an intellectual agreement. Do you believe that? Yeah, sure, I can agree with that. No, 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 no. Do you, would you put your life on the line? Hey, hey. I can agree to, that's fine. Snickers is the greatest candy bar. Fine. So now we're going to go ahead and put our life on the, whoa, whoa, whoa. Pump the brakes here. This is about trust, which includes but also transcends the intellect. Trust is made up of a number of ingredients like integrity, character, honesty, and commitment. Different. It's loaded. So he's saying we commit our trust to this. Clearly, this is not about wrestling someone down with a bunch of brain proofs. So what does it actually mean to say yes to Jesus? What does it mean to trust? Is it simply speaking certain religious words in the right way? Is it verbally affirming a specific set of religious bullet points? Is it a signed document? Nicodemus has seen Jesus live a particular way, the way of love, compassion, serving, and sacrifice toward all people. Then Jesus says a life that gets that, 
follows the spirit that moves like the wind, which means a life not imprisoned to religious systems. Uh Uh-oh. We do not check our brains at the door as it pertains to this, but following Jesus is not simply an intellectual exam or a fact-finding excursion that leads to perfect certainty. We have to learn to not bow down to intellectual certainty and to be able to embrace the wind, which is mystery. And some of us go, oh, that's uncomfortable. Yeah, and stunning and beautiful at the same time. So we need another imaginative exercise, yes? A friend says to you, I understand you perfectly. I know your family, your background, your psychological and emotional temperaments, your strengths and weaknesses. I understand you completely. Would you feel completely understood? I'm going to guess no. Now imagine your friend says, you're a mystery to me. I've known you for years, but you have a depth that escapes me. The longer I know you, the more I know that you have this transcendent mystery about you. In this non-understanding, you are paradoxically better understood. Because honoring mystery makes room for love to blossom and grow and become more. I love who you are. And there is just a mystery about you that I know you're growing and moving and just becoming more. And it's so mysterious. And you go, wow, they get me by not getting me. Now, Jesus goes on to say to Nicodemus that God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. Then he goes on to say some things about light having come into the world, but some people will continue to choose darkness as the path they walk. And then Jesus is going to take his students and leave the area. And then we don't have anything in the story that says Nicodemus prays a prayer or makes some official recorded decision to follow Jesus. The best we know is Nicodemus walks away from this conversation with Jesus and he wrestles. It's like rolling around within him and he wrestles with it. So then the question becomes, does Nicodemus show up again in the story? Yep. Where? When the Pharisees are gathered together and the chief priests and they're waiting for the temple guards to arrest Jesus because he's continuing in his rebellious ways of their system. So we go to John chapter 7 where Nicodemus shows up again. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? Where's Jesus? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. And the Pharisees get all hacked off. Nicodemus, who, this is the guy who had gone to Jesus earlier and who is one of their own, he's a member of them, asked, well, does our law condemn a man without first hearing to find out what he has been doing? How do the Pharisees reply? They replied, are you from Galilee too? 
Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. They say to him, interesting. Nicodemus seems to have continued wrestling, right? Because he wants to create space, even trying to claim their own law. Hey, let's give this guy space. Let's hear him out. What does he think he is doing by doing what he's doing? The Pharisees say, well, look into any prophets ever coming from the Galilee region because they say, no, there is not. Here's one of those times where you go, great, then let's do what they ask. Let's look into it. Do any prophets come from the Galilee? Wait a minute. When you study and look into it, a little prophet by the name of Jonah, the swallowed by a giant fish guy, where was he from? 2 Kings 14.25 says he's from Gath Heifer. So what we need is a map, and that'll tell us, well, where is Gath Heifer? Next slide. Map says Gath Heifer is just a little bit northeast of Nazareth in the Galilee. Oh, very interesting. So then, what's the deal with this? And what did Jonah do? Who is he? Um, did they forget about Jonah? Do you think they forgot? Oh, yeah, that's right, Jonah. Maybe, maybe they forgot about him, or maybe it's because Jonah was the least respected prophet by the purely religious people because he invited the enemy to repent. <laughs> we don't like him. It, rather than just calling down fire on these people, which is what Jonah wanted to do, if you know that story. That's what he wanted to do, right? He's like, I don't want to tell people about God, not the enemy anyways. And then because all of Nineveh, including the animals, it said, <laughs> repented and turned to God, Jonah was the most successful prophet. What a tension. Least respected because he calls enemies to God. Most successful because apparently all of Nineveh, including the animals, put on sackcloth and ashes. What is sackcloth? Animal uh, uh, fur like turned inside out and you wear it so that it's uncomfortable and itchy. So the animals took their... What the... It's so funny. It is satirical. It's hilarious, the book of Jonah. Anyways, so there's that. We got this tension because here is where he's from. What was the whole point of Jonah, the book of Jonah? It wasn't about a giant fish. Ready? It was about a prophet not wanting those unlike him, the improper people, his enemies to hear the message of God because Jonah knew something about God. In the book of Jonah, it says this. What did he know? Why didn't he want to do it? I knew, God, that you are a gracious gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. God, I knew if I told these people about you, I know your love is so big, your compassion is so big, and you will actually let them off the hook. But in order for Jonah to do what God called him to do, Jonah had to spend three days in the belly of a fish. Ready? Or that is, Jonah sits in the darkness of a womb for a time 
of reflection and then he is vomited out of the fish or he is reborn coming out of the womb of darkness. Are you with me? Woo-wee. Then in Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees approach Jesus and they say, we want you to give us a sign to prove what you think you are doing. What is it you're doing? And so in Matthew, next slide, Chapter 12, verse 39 and 40, he answered the Pharisees, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Ready? Or in the womb of the earth before a new creation is born out of resurrection. Come on! Yes! Jesus tells the Pharisees, all you get is the upside-down way of the kingdom of God, which is about dying to the ways of power that oppress. In a veiled way, Jesus once again says that he will enter into death itself in order, to, in order to overcome it. Those who are stuck in systems or wombs, religious and political, that elevate some while crushing and dominating others will miss seeing and walking in the kingdom of God. Come on. Whoa. Father Franciscan father Richard Rohr says this. Next slide. I can see why Christians use the language of born again. The great traditions seem to recognize the first birth is not enough. We not only have to be born, but also remade. The remaking of the soul and the refreshing of the eye is the return to simplicity or what Jesus called childlike trust. Yeah. Hoo-wee. Now, another scholar and theologian says this. Next slide. When Jesus prefaced his enigmatic sayings with the words, let those with eyes to see, see, let those with ears to hear, hear, scholars tell us he was speaking as a teacher of Jewish wisdom, appealing not just to the head, but to the whole person of his listener, heart, body, Mind, senses, imagination, like a lure darting and flashing before a fish, Jesus' words dance and play before the imagination, breaking open our habitual assumptions about the way things are. To be born again is to break free of the stultifying womb of conventional wisdom. Following Jesus isn't a script or a signed document that provides proof that we are saved. Following Jesus is a lived journey. There are no doubt plenty of people who can name a moment or a day and time when they were shaken, stirred, or awakened. And then they mark the moment. So they have that day or that time. That is beautiful. That is great. 
but we don't haul out a birth certificate to prove we are currently breathing and alive. Our living, breathing, walking, and talking life reveals a love that is darting and flashing within us, moving us evermore in the ways of Jesus. That's a different kind of knowing. Being reborn is a paradox. It's saying yes to a swirling cocktail of sacrifice and following in the ways of the suffering servant. And it's the unspeakable elation of being fully alive and free. It's saying yes to the newness of all things found in birth, but that also means sacrificing the old systems and structures in order to cultivate the maturation of all that is new. And that involves a sense of mystery. If we're honest, the old systems are far more comfortable, easy, and tend to be more profitable for our small individualistic kingdoms. Right? Saying yes to the kingdom of God is not easy. It involves significant wrestling, which is why one of our core values as a church is being a people, that is a church, in which you can belong as you wrestle with what you believe. Because we know that Jesus created communities of belonging for all people. And he most often began with the outsider, the marginalized, and those who have been excluded by the wider society and systems. And that's really messy. You belong here. You belong here because Jesus loved all people and made space for everyone to belong while they wrestled with what they believed. Now, I'd like to create a little bit of space for us to reflect on the idea of love and mystery, images and epiphany. What I want to do is create some space and have us listen. We get to watch because we get to uh, listen to spoken word poem, poetry. A spoken word poem by a brilliant artist named Amina Brown. And I want us to just listen because she gives pictures, images, metaphors. She crafts words to put together that will awaken our imagination to create space, at least for that epiphonic moment. Oh. So we're going to watch this video of this lady in a nightclub offering some spoken word goodness to us. Question. Uh, this poem is called She Said. How do you know when you're hearing from God? She said, how do you know when you're hearing from God? I didn't know how to explain. It is to explain the butter grit of cornbread to a mouth that just discovered it has a tongue. The sound of jazz to ears that only ever thought they'd be lobes of flesh. The sight of sunsets to a blinded eye that an instant can see to fail. At the ability to describe how the scent of baked bread can make the mind recall a memory. Every detail of a house, a room, a conversation. Like explaining to a newborn baby, this is what it feels like to be held. My words never felt so small, 
so useless, so incapable. I wanted to tell her. Put your hand in the center of your chest. Feel the rhythm there. I wanted to tell her you will find the holy text in so many places. On crinkly pages of scripture, in a dusty hymnal, in the crease of a grandmother smile, the way she clasps her hands and prays familiar, as if to dignitary and friend, the way she sings a simple song from her spirit turns her porch into a cathedral. I learned from my great-grandmother how to pray, how to talk to God, how to listen watching her and the other silver-haired church mothers gather in her living room. See, they pray living room prayers because you don't have to be inside the four walls of a church to cry out to the God who made you, and despite what the law say, or what our human flaws say, God's ears don't play favorites, God's ears don't assess bank accounts or social status for they attune themselves to the story. Your tears or your fears are telling God's ears are here for the babies, for the dreamers, for the immigrant and the refugee, for the orphan and the widow, for the depressed and the lonely, for the oppressed, for those about to make a mess or caught in the middle of cleaning one up. See, dirt don't scare God's ears. God is a gardener. God knows full well. It takes rain and sun and soil to make things grow. I wanted to tell her, if you want to experience God, you have to be willing to experience what's holy in the places so many people don't even deem to be sacred, that sometimes God sits next to you on a bar stool, spilling truth to you like too many beers, that God knows full well the dance we do and we love ourselves so little that just about anyone will do that God cares about the moments we find ourselves on the edge of a cliff, on the edge of sanity. On the edge of society, I wanted to tell her how God is always waiting, lingering after the doors close and the phone doesn't ring and we are finally alone, how God is always saying, I love you, I'm here, don't go, stay, please, how God is always pleading with us to trust to love, to listen, how God's voice is all thunder and whisper and bass lines and grace. Sometimes when I pray, I think about her how the voice of God was lingering in her very question, how just like so many of us, like you, like me, like her, still doubting, still searching, still questioning. I know I don't have all the answers. I know I never will. Maybe the best thing I can do is put my hand in the center of my chest, feel the rhythm there, turn down the noise in our minds and our lives and whisper, God, whatever you want to say, I'm here. I'm listening. I want to take um, a few more minutes and have us both sing together. We can listen uh, as the band and kind of invites us to continue to have that role around within us, through us, over us. The different ways of knowing, hearing from the divine, whispering, thundering, singing. We need it all. Gracious God, we bless you. For the ways in which you love us, all of the ways in which you speak to us, draw us near to you. For some, you are an aroma that we are drawn to. For others, it is a whisper, and others yet, it is a nudge, a pinch, a budge. 
For some, you are a booming voice in our chest, calling us, summoning us to walk with you, to follow you into the darkest places to bring light, to speak light, to be light that others may experience you, see you, taste you, and begin to discover the love that is you. May we continue to pry our hearts open as not to miss out on all of the ways, the many ways in which you speak to your kids whom you love. Amen. Thank you.